So if you have kids, or if you once were a kid, um, and particularly if you were a kid with siblings, you might know this. Um, siblings are really good at getting into trouble by getting overly physical with each other. Any of you familiar with this concept? Um, usually, I'll just speak about my household. Um, usually, I've got three girls, three young girls. They, when they get physical, it's not usually that they're fighting. It's just that they are playing, and they're playing rough, and sometimes that turns into being overly physical. Um, and, and that gets a little bit worse sometimes when there is a sibling who loves to cause trouble just to cause trouble because they enjoy causing trouble. We have one of those in our household. Uh, she shall remain unnamed, but those of you who know our kids might be able to guess who it is. So what often happens is our kids are playing, they're playing nicely, they start getting really into it, and then someone starts screaming or crying, and they come up to myself or my wife, and they say, so-and-so hit me, or so-and-so did this to me, um, and then the one who has the charge against them says, I didn't mean to, or I didn't mean to hurt them, I didn't mean to do this to them, and in my, in my not best parenting moment, my response is, what did you expect was going to happen? Of course you knew that that was going to harm them, but, but in my more, most generous, in my better parenting moments, what my response tends to be, okay, well, you did hurt them, you did cause them harm in some way, and so now you know to stop doing that thing. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that works. But the goal is, like, once they know that something has been done that is causing harm, hopefully they will respond in such a way that they will not continue to do that harm. Unfortunately, this is a lesson that comes up repeatedly, like almost every single day in our household. And unfortunately, this is a lesson that us as grown-ups know really well too, right? This is a lesson that we could take to heart in our world because it is something that we constantly see. Something is done, whether it is done purposefully or not, and that something is done somehow causes harm, and then that person who is being harmed notes, hey, this thing that you are doing or saying is causing harm to me. And then there is this open question of the one who is being told that they are causing harm, how are they going to respond? Are they going to say, well, I didn't mean to, and then continue to cause that harm? Or are they, or are they going to use it as an opportunity to begin acting and doing differently as a result of that, right? Uh, this is why relationships with people are really, really important. This came up this past week. It, um, it, it triggered my memory this, this past week as I was thinking about poinsettia plants. You all are familiar with poinsettia plants, right? Uh, as we get closer to Christmas, they're going to be more and more present. Uh, they are like everywhere this time of year, especially as we get into December. This is like the Christmas plant. Um, this has been a Christmas plant for almost 200 years, okay? Um, and I did some reading, as, as I tend to do, and uh, how, how many of you know where the poinsettias get their name? We've got one hand. All right, hey, here we go. So poinsettias get their name from a guy named Joel Poinsett. 
Any of you heard of Joel Poinsett before? Okay, this is a picture of Joel Poinsett. Real classy guy, right? Uh, so Joel Poinsett was the very first U.S. minister to Mexico. He started that position in the 1820s. So he goes to Mexico as the first uh, U.S. minister to Mexico, and he discovers, while he's there, this, this flowering plant. And it's beautiful, and it's used around that time of year. It's flowering at that time of year. And so he's really excited about this, and he takes some, and he sends them back to the United States because he's really excited about this new thing. Um, and, and you might be thinking, well, what... What's wrong with that? He's excited about this, this new thing that he has found in, in his job in this faraway place, and he's having it sent back so that more and more people can enjoy it. Well, um, the more you learn about Joel Poinsett, and we've kind of been going back to it over the last several years and learning more about this guy and his history, it's not a great one. So Joel Poinsett was a slaveholder and a white supremacist who used all that pseudoscience to argue that, that people who were non-white were in basically every single way inferior, and their, their uh, placement of inferiority within society was just kind of the way that God made things to work. On top of that, eventually he was no longer the U.S. minister to Mexico. You'll see why in just a second when you read this quote about Mexico. But he, uh, he ended up leaving that position, and he became the Secretary of War for the United States. And in that position, he was one of the architects of the displacement of Native Americans. So, oh, yeah, the quote. So, just as an example of, of something that, that Joel Poinsett would say, this is what he said when he was in his job as minister to Mexico. He said, the Mexican people were and still are degraded to the very lowest class of human beings, a more ignorant and debauched people than their ancestors had been. Great guy, right? So, we didn't know this. Did, you didn't even know who Joel Poinsett was, right? Um, and yet... This is an example of where now, as we're able to look back, we're able to see this man, see what he represented, primarily because we are relearning these things as a result of those uh, groups of people, Native Americans and, and Mexicans, who are able to say, listen, this, this history behind this, this plant that we celebrate this time of year, it's not great. And so this is yet another example of we have learned something now. We have this uh, awareness of something. And it is because of the people who are being harmed, pointing out that harm. And so there is this open question of since the harm is being pointed out, do we continue as is or do we use this as an opportunity leaning into those relationships to say maybe we can do something different going forward? So we are in this series, smack dab in the middle of this short but important series that we're calling Good Trouble. We kicked it off last week, and this series is all about courageously confronting racism. The reason we are in this series, the reason we are doing this, even if just for three weeks, is because we say that this type of work, courageously confronting racism, it's not something tangential, it's not something on the side, but is intimately tied to what it means for us to be individual followers of Jesus and for us to be a church. This is the type of justice work that we need to be involved in because of our faith and our commitment to our faith. 
Uh, and we're basing this series largely on this book called How to Fight Racism by Jamar Tisby. Um, Jamar Tisby is a theologian and historian, and his goal is to provide some helpful tools, helpful thoughts for how we as individuals and as a church and as a society can courageously confront racism. And one of the things that he does, which we touched on last week, we introduced last week, was lay out this formula for something that we can do, and it's called ACT, A-C-T. So, last week we talked about awareness, okay? Awareness is simply being aware of being, uh, being in on knowing the, the details of the problem that is before us, the racial dis- divide and the racial injustice that is before us. Great. You got to be aware of it to begin with. Well, today we start moving into relationships. And this is what uh, Jamar Tisby has to say about relationships. Mere accumulation of facts will not change the racial status quo, nor will a commitment to systemic change alone build the bridges of interpersonal understanding. People need a personal motivation to disrupt the regular patterns of racism in their own lives and in society. Often, it is a relationship or a friendship that changes a person's perspective. Reading a book about the civil rights movement can be helpful, but hearing the grief in the voice of someone who lived through it will leave a more lasting impression. It is difficult to pursue effective structural remedies to racism if you have little understanding of the personal experiences of marginalized people. Relationships make reconciliation real and motivate us to act. So, Again, there is the awareness, like the general awareness, but then there is the relationship and the understanding of lived experience which allows us to take the next step in courageously confronting racism in ourselves, in our churches, and in our world. Now, the nice thing is, is that we are a part of a church tradition that places high value on experience. Uh, One of the things within our church tradition that... uh, even if we don't regularly refer to it, it's constantly in the back of our mind and kind of guiding the way that, that we work and the way that we think and the things that we do is something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. If you've been around here for a while, you're probably familiar with this. But just as a reminder, a quadrilateral, fancy word for what? A rectangle? It's got four sides. And so uh, a quadrilateral like a quadrilateral that has four sides, the idea is that in order to know how to best live and act and how to uh, live our best and most faithful lives, in order to know that and to do that, we need to take four things, like four sides of a quadrilateral, into account. The first one is Scripture. What does the Bible say about this? How does the Bible instruct us about this thing, how to live, what to believe? Okay, then there's number two, which is tradition. How has this uh, throughout history been understood and applied? How have people who uh, were alive centuries before me come to understand this thing? And then the third thing is reason. What makes sense in my brain, in our brains collectively, what makes sense within the world that we live in and how we understand it? And then the fourth thing, which we're really keying in on today, is experience. Our own lived experience and the lived experience of other people, when it comes to this conversation, especially those who are in uh, racial minorities, 
Those lived experiences are important and so important that it is only by uh, valuing and crediting and elevating those lived experiences, it's only by that that we are going to be successful in courageously confronting racism. Those relationships are important because they show us how to bridge and repair relationships within ourselves, within our churches, and within our world. Which leads us to a guy named Paul. Uh, Paul was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. Paul was himself a Jew who uh, originally um, did not like followers of Jesus, was a persecutor of Christians, and then eventually, because he had this lived experience himself, uh, he became a follower of Jesus himself, and in, in the, the process of that, became convinced this message is too big, too universal to just be for me. I need to go out uh, and, and extend this message to people who are not like me. This is not just for people who are living in Jerusalem, Jewish people who are living in Jerusalem, but I'm going to go out throughout the Roman Empire to try to bring this this message to as many people as possible. So, uh, Paul goes, he starts making his way across the Roman Empire, stopping in different cities along the way, teaching and preaching and raising up leaders and planting churches, and then moving on to the next one. He's working his way from Jerusalem. He eventually tries to make his way all the way to Spain, if you can kind of imagine that map. Um, As you can imagine, that's a lot of land, a lot of different types of people, And so, as he went to these places, as he stayed there with them and taught with them and got to know them and then moved on to the next ones, not everything was perfect. Not everybody got along. With with that much diversity, there comes some fractures, right? Some, um, Some complexities in relationship. Within each of those places, there were differences in religion already. Uh, There are differences in race and ethnicity, and so as he was starting these these churches and then moving on and writing back to them, he's trying to help them to navigate those tricky relationships and then help them to focus on the things that are most important. So our New Testament, the second half of our Bible, is full of letters of this guy named Paul writing back to those churches and reminding them of the things that are most important. And one of the things that he continually comes back to is the importance of relationship, particularly renewed relationship, which often gets coined as reconciliation. So just as an example, this is one thing that he writes in one of his letters to a church in the city called Corinth. This is what he says, writing back to them. Therefore, because we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people, but we are well known to God, and I hope we are well known to your consciences too. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may be able to answer those who take pride in outward appearance and not in what is in the heart. For if we are out of our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us since we have concluded this, that Christ died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from our outward human point of view. 
Even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view, now we do not know him in that way any longer. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting people's trespasses against them, and he was given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. There's a lot going on there. And this is the second of two letters that Paul sends to the church in the city of Corinth, uh, two of the letters that we have. We can tell from the, the letters that we have that he's actually written more letters that we don't have ourselves. So this is like an ongoing conversation that he is having with these people that he has a relationship with, trying to remind them of the things that are most important. Corinth was a very diverse city, and even the church that was founded there was, uh, was extremely diverse. There were Jewish people and then Gentile people. There were uh, various socioeconomic classes, um, and, and there was all sorts of contention, all sorts of feuds that were raising up within the church. And so Paul writes to them to remind them, yeah, you have these differences, but what you need to do is you need to listen to each other and value one another because there is something that is more important than those things, okay? Uh, as, as I was reading that, there may have been a verse that kind of stood out uh, that, that might have sounded a little bit familiar. And this is verse 17, I'll refer to that again, and then verse 18, which immediately follows, that really keys in on what is the most important thing that Paul is trying to communicate to the people in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, he or they are a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It gets lost a little bit of uh, translation, but it says, um, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone the new has come. What gets lost in translation there is that the words are not actually, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, or they are a new creation. The most literal reading is, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Bam! There's like this seismic shift that happens, and that seismic shift means that, yes, this thing, that has, this thing has been done for you, for us, to make us somehow in right relationship with God, but the purpose is that you can continue this work of reconciliation. You are given this gift in order that you can be the ones who go out there and help to make right relationships with the people around you. It's not that this thing is just given to you and then you go to your own corners. It is in order that you might be brought together and that you might bring other people together as well maintaining and building those meaningful relationships in order to cross those divides, right? Uh, this is what Jamar Tisby, once again, says about reconciliation specifically. 
Reconciliation need not have anything to do with chronology or the search for a time or an era when people were at peace with one another. Perhaps reconciliation refers more fundamentally to the original pattern for relationships that must be restored and fulfilled. God created human beings to be at peace with one another and with God. The current state of relations between racial groups is often open war or at best a cold peace. Reconciliation does not mean returning to a bygone historical era of harmony, but rather revising our relationships to more closely match God's foundational pattern for human interaction. God's foundational pattern for human action, interaction. The job of our job as individuals, as churches, as collectively a world is to help to restore those original intentions for human interactions. That sounds wonderful. And of course, your first question is probably my first question too. How on earth are we going to do that? Have you seen this world? Well, um, I don't want to give an easy answer to that because there's not an easy answer. However, um, I think that three things, three things that we can do as individuals, collectively as, as churches, and then as a society, if we were to do these three things, they're not easy, but they can be simple, and they can help us take that next step towards uh, right relationship and, and towards reconciliation. And for each one, I also want to offer a caveat, okay? So the first one, the first thing that we can do as individuals and then collectively as, as churches and as society, we can actually foster relationships with people who are different from us, particularly those of us who look like me, who could easily just float around in a world of people who look like me and not take other people into consideration. Uh, and this does not have to be overly weird, right? Um, it can be as easy as just any interaction that you would have with anybody else, wanting to get to know them. Hey, do you want to go grab coffee sometime? Hey, do you want to grab a drink? Hey, what do you enjoy that I might be able to join you for? I would love to get to know you better. And, and the purpose of this is not to, um, to like, have your social justice creds. The, the purpose is not so that when you screw up going forward, you can say, oh, it's okay, I've got that black friend. I had coffee with them. We were, we were great. Uh, the purpose, again, is to foster relationship, genuine relationship with people who are different from us, which leads us to the second thing. Okay, so number one, foster relationships. The, the second is to actually listen to perspectives and lived experiences that are different from us. Maybe that is via a, a, an actual relationship that you have with somebody, or maybe it's sitting down and, and listening and learning and, and reading and taking in different perspectives in order that you might see the world differently and maybe act differently as a result. The caveat here is that um, you should not expect that, that the people who are different from you have to be your teachers. That should not be the expectation that you place on them. Oh, I want to learn about someone who has a different experience than I do, so I would like you to teach me everything that I need to know. No, that is not what's going on here. Um, 
what, what it does mean is that when those opportunities come, whether in personal interactions or uh, just the, the general learnings and listenings and all of that, that you are open to those lived-in experiences, open to the, the harm maybe that you are hearing having been done, and open to do things different going forward, which leads us directly to number three, which is removing the barriers that are preventing right relationships from happening. As you have interactions or as you are uh, listening to these different perspectives, you, I, we have to be willing to say, what are the things that are keeping those right relationships from happening? What are the things that are keeping reconciliation from happening? And how can I change what I'm doing, what I'm saying, how I'm, how I'm living in order to make those right relationships possible? The caveat here is that this is not about being politically correct. This is not about uh, just using all the, the right language because if we use all the right language, then everything's going to be fine and we can pat ourselves on the back. Once again, this is about opening ourselves up to relationships that we can have in order that reconciliation, the, two, the true type of reconciliation that we are tasked with continuing can potentially, potentially possibly happen as a result of the change that's happening in us. Which brings us all the way back to poinsettias. Um, poinsettias are obviously a very meaningful thing for lots and lots of people and have been for 200 years. You're going to see them in a lot of places, including up here on the stage, because we're taking orders right now from people who want to, uh, to purchase those in memory of someone so that we can fill this stage with them. And we have this new awareness, many of you, this new awareness for the first time this morning of the harm that has been done and is continuing to be done because of the name that is attached to them. Given that, trying to foster relationship, listen to different perspectives, remove barriers that, that uh, prevent us from reconciliation. I think the very least we can do is learn their original name and try to use their original name. And I'm doing this right along with you this morning, okay? So, here is the original name of the Christmas plant, Okay, and we're gonna, I'm gonna read it for you and then we're gonna read it together and I'm gonna refer to it later in the service and try to get it right and we're gonna, grace is gonna abound, right? So the original name of, of these plants that the U.S. minister to Mexico would have discovered, the name that he would have originally been given for them, if he said, what is that thing? It's beautiful. The original name would have been Quetla Xochel. You say it with me? Quetla Xochel. La um, it, might, it might sound absolutely ridiculous that simply learning an unfamiliar word is an opportunity for us to take a step towards courageously confronting racism. Maybe that sounds completely ridiculous. And yet, it is a step. It's a small step, but even those small steps can help us to move from awareness to relationship, and then eventually towards, hopefully, 
courageously confronting racism in ourselves, in our churches, and in our world. So may that be so.